Thanks, Lauren. It's been so good to spend that time in worship this morning. I'm excited to bring the word this morning. I don't know what the Spirit wants to say, but I think he wants to say something to us. Let's see. Just put my uh, title slide up for me, please. So we're ready to go. So, where we left the story two weeks ago, Jesus was teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Plain. And the overarching thrust of the Sermon on the Plain was to overturn the established ways of judging a person's worth, a person's rightness before God, and challenging the disciples to live differently. And maybe you remember me two weeks ago talking about reciprocity, that established system, the social system that they had of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, of treating another person in an equivalent way to how they have treated you. And we saw Jesus overturning that and saying, no, don't do that. God's kingdom is so much bigger and just giving people what you feel they deserve. Show love for your enemies. Act for their good. Give generously without looking for any return. Don't go around judging people. The rules of God's kingdom are totally different to everything you've known before and to how you instinctively want to act. Now we didn't look at this bit, but towards the end of the Sermon on the Plain, the end of chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 46, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do as I say? It's no good singing my praises if you ignore my teachings. It's no good claiming to follow me if you don't treat others the way that I ask you to. You actually have to do the things that I say if you want to call yourself my follower. So he's not messing around here. Chapter 7, uh, which we come to today, picks up from there. It picks up as Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Plain. So we're going to read together from verse 1 of chapter 7. It will be on the screen Please turn to it if you've got a Bible and follow along as well. So Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to come to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are. 
and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, will you come and challenge us this morning to see things differently? If we are not challenged in fresh ways by your word, then we are not allowing it to speak. Come and speak. Help us to understand. Help us to be changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus has finished his teaching on the plain, and now he goes back to Capernaum. So, Capernaum is one of the towns or villages on the edge of the lake that is known as the Sea of Galilee that features in so many gospel adventures uh, that we see of Jesus and his disciples. Capernaum quite likely is the hometown of Simon Peter. Luke tells us in chapter 4 that after Jesus' sermon in Nazareth, in his hometown synagogue, the next thing Jesus does is to go to Capernaum. And he preaches in the synagogue in Capernaum too, every Sabbath, it says in Luke chapter 4. So he is known in Capernaum. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. And now in chapter 7, he goes back to Capernaum. And we know that they know him there. This local, this popular local celebrity is back in town. And then in verse 2, we hear about a Roman officer, a centurion, he's called in some translations, a centurion, a commander, and his slave, who is sick and near to death. And what we learn about this centurion, this officer, what we learn is that he is unexpected. He is surprising. He never actually appears on the stage, we never actually see him in this account. If this was a play, you wouldn't want the part of the centurion because he doesn't actually come onto the stage. But what we find out about him is really quite unexpected. This Roman centurion would be a Gentile, not Jewish. And therefore, he would be seen as inferior by the Jewish people. But he's got a double negative status because he's not just a neutral Gentile, he's a Roman soldier. He's working for the Roman Empire who are occupying this region by force. And so he is an outsider. 
he is an enemy. But something really interesting seems to have been happening with this outsider, with this enemy. We don't know where he's from, but he would have been brought up as a pagan. In the Roman Empire, it was the emperor and the the Roman gods who were worshipped, pagan gods. And the pagan gods were cold and heartless and indifferent and they had to be appeased. Somehow this man has become aware of Yahweh the God who is worshipped by the Jews, who are the people living in this place where he's been posted. And somehow this man has come to believe something about Yahweh. He's come to realize that Yahweh is not at all like the gods that he was brought up to worship. And we know that because the first group of messengers who come to Jesus are Jewish leaders. And they've clearly got some kind of a relationship with this centurion because they've come to speak for him. It seems like some enemies are less objectionable than others. He must have got to know these local leaders and they have come to testify that he has respect for them and their faith because he's the one who's paid for the synagogue to be built. That is surprising and puzzling. He's a wealthy Roman soldier in a position of power, but he's got a relationship of respect with the local community leaders. Even though at the start they would have viewed him as Gentile filth. And he's given them a large amount of money for them to build their synagogue. There is something different about this man. He is humane. He has a slave, and the slave matters enough to him that he's going to bother to seek help for the slave when he is close to death. That is not normal behavior for a Roman soldier to treat a slave. This Roman soldier is showing love for people he would not be expected to show love for. For the people that he is there to oppress and who are only too happy to despise him for what he represents. He's given generously to them and earned their respect. He's showing love for a slave who had no power and was expendable. A slave could just be replaced at the next market day. Does any of this remind you of anything? Love for those who are enemies. Love for those who are weak and vulnerable. Giving generously without expecting anything in return. Is this ringing any bells from what we heard two weeks ago? 
out of compassion. He wants to seek help for a slave who cannot possibly ever hope to repay him or offer much in return. And so we have this deputation of respected Jewish officials coming to see Jesus on this man's behalf. It might seem a bit weird to us that the man doesn't just come himself to Jesus, but that isn't a snub. It's actually an act of humility in that culture. He's acknowledging that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi and he is a Gentile, and so Jesus may not want to receive him or speak to him. He's got a bit to learn about Jesus then. He's going out of his way to show respect for Jewish practices and Jewish sensitivities by not coming himself in person. I wonder whose idea it was to seek help from Jesus. I wonder who had that idea that maybe Jesus could help. And I wonder whose idea it was that these leaders could go and speak for him. This group of local community leaders, they would be regulars in the Capernaum synagogue. And so they would be familiar with Jesus and what he had been teaching. But I think the centurion must have heard about him as well. Has heard about him, the kind of things he says and the kind of things that he does. And he's connected that with this God, Yahweh, that he has already started showing respect for. Let's see what this deputation says. They earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Now, what do you notice about the reason that they give as to why Jesus should help this man? They're following the established pattern of society because he deserves it. If anyone is deserving, he is. Look what he's done. He loves our people. He gave us money to build our synagogue. We'll vouch for how worthy he is. Can you see the reciprocity in their attitude? He's a wealthy man. And he's done a very good thing for us. So obviously he deserves your help, Jesus. Who could be more deserving than such a generous benefactor? So this centurion, he seems to be a bit of a golden boy for them because he's built their synagogue. But even though this deputation have come to speak for him, I think he didn't ask them to say that. Those are their words that we hear and not his. And the reason I think that is because of the second message. We hear the centurion's own words from the second group of messengers. Verse 6. I can only think that he's had second thoughts about the first group. 
that he's realised what they're likely to say and realised that he's uncomfortable with that. The second group are described as his friends. The first group are not. And his deservingness is absolutely not the reason why he's asking for Jesus' help. So this second group, they pass on his words in the first person. Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honour. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Those are his words that we hear. And it's almost the exact opposite of what the first group have said. And I think that's intentional. They came, the first group, to explain how worthy he is. But he wants to say, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to even come to my house. And that's not false humility. Because I think Jesus would have spotted that. This soldier has understood that if Jesus is going to do this, the reason won't be his worthiness. And he wants to give Jesus another reason, the real reason, the one that comes from his heart. And so he makes no claim of personal deservingness or merit. He is relying on no framework of social obligation. He wants to tell Jesus that what he is relying on, what he's staking everything on here, is his realization of who Jesus is. That's what that bit about authority is about in verse 8. He's a soldier. He understands authority. This is how his world works. And so this is how he explains his faith. He himself is a commander of men. He has men under him and when he gives a command, it happens. But the reason that when he commands something, it happens is because he bears the authority of the empire and the emperor. He's not just anyone giving orders. He has vested in him the authority of the emperor. And so when he gives a command, it is as though the emperor himself has given that command. And it is done. And this centurion is recognizing that in Jesus, there is vested the authority of God himself. That Jesus represents God in a somehow parallel way to how he represents the emperor. And therefore, when Jesus commands something, it happens. Because he speaks with the authority of God himself. And since Jesus speaks with God's authority, whatever he declares will happen. This is what he believes. Military power, not even the power of the emperor, can heal a sick man or raise the dead. 
not all the might of the entire army that he is part of can push back against the power of death in a dying man. He recognizes a different sort of power in Jesus. That the power that Jesus has is not like any other power that he's come across. In a society that was structured around power and layers of power and authority. Jesus' power heals people. Jesus' power changes people. It disregards the powerful and it lifts up the lowly and the worthless. That the centurion is able to see that and honor it is remarkable. It is the sign of the spirit at work in him. He wants Jesus to know that he will have none of the manipulative politics of reciprocity. He knows that he cannot buy this in any sense. And he wants Jesus to know that he understands that that's not how this works and he will have none of it. And that is the key. Instead, he recognizes and submits purely and simply to the power and the presence of God in Jesus. And that is the bit that makes Jesus amazed. The centurion is showing that he recognized his own unworthiness. He didn't agree with those others who reckoned that he deserved Jesus' help because of how worthy he was. And secondly, he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes his own unworthiness and he recognizes who Jesus is. That he is God. That he has the authority of God and the spirit of God is in him. And he's willing to submit himself to that. In a situation where he has no power at all to bring about the outcome that he wants. It is a powerful thing when we can submit to the Lordship of Christ when we are surrounded by our own helplessness. To recognize that we are helpless, but he has power. And to declare that in the midst of our helplessness. And to risk something on that. To actually risk something and stake something on saying, I am helpless here, but you, Jesus, you have the power. You are the one with the power, and I'm going to stake everything on that. It might feel like a failure to us to admit weakness, but it's not. It's a declaration of strength, his strength, and our reliance on it. 
When I am weak, then I am strong. And what makes Jesus amazed is that he's finding all this in a Roman soldier, an outsider. This man has been brought up a pagan, but he is more able to recognize the power and the presence of God and more willing to submit to it than any of the insiders who've been taught about Yahweh all their lives. Jesus is always drawn to outsiders. But the insiders always find that hard. Jesus is drawn to tax collectors. The people hated them and didn't want anything to do with them, but Jesus saw the person inside and loved them. Jesus is drawn to lepers and cripples. They were viewed as worthless and to be avoided, but Jesus saw the person inside and loved them. Jesus' heart was for the outsiders, the powerless, the rejected, those who were only ever able to look in from the outside at the privileged insiders because they wouldn't let them in. There's a challenge for us here. This centurion does not fit into the category assigned to him the label that is given to him of despicable, irredeemable, godless enemy. He doesn't fit the bill. And he wants to cross the boundary that society has drawn for him to keep him out. He wants to cross that boundary to get to God. And Jesus is going to help him. Something very strange is happening here in this story. This is a story about a person who is not behaving according to type. He's not conforming to the expectations that come with his category and his label. Because Jesus doesn't see labels. Not the labels that we assign to other people not the labels that other people assign to us, not the labels that we assign to ourselves. Jesus sees individuals. He sees past the lumped together categories that we like to use. He doesn't see categories of people. He sees individuals. He sees every individual separately and allows them to define themselves and not just be defined by a category or a label. And we too need to grow beyond this trait we have of lumping people together and making assumptions about them because of their category. We need to see and love the individual, see the heart, like Jesus did. We need to allow them to surprise us. 
you know, we will never get anywhere addressing the divisions and the suspicions that we have in society that keep us separate from each other until we are able to see every person as an individual as they truly are and not a category lumped in with others. Jesus was amazed because he had not thought it would be possible to see such things from a man like this. But it was. And if Jesus can be amazed, maybe we can too. Are we willing to see things that we had not thought would be possible because we've allowed ourselves to open our eyes and see individuals and not their label? If Jesus wanted a real-life example of a person who was living the things that he'd just been teaching them about, in the Sermon on the Plain, he would struggle to find one in the people who'd been brought up with Yahweh all their lives. But he's found one here. And Jesus is impressed by the simple genuineness of this outsider's faith. And he doesn't heal the slave because of the centurion's goodness and generosity to the Jewish people. Jesus is on a mission to seek and save the lost. He's come not for those who see themselves as healthy, but for those who will admit that they need a doctor. He's come for the lost sheep whoever and wherever they might be. However unexpected and surprising they may be. However much at odds with the labelling we give them, they may be. He will bring them all home. Let me say a little bit more before I finish, about worthiness and unworthiness in this story. There are always some people, some of them are Christians, some of them are only ever teetering on the edge, but people who never really get past this question of worthiness because they don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy of what God wants to give me, so I'd better not have it because I don't deserve it. And I know that humility and knowing that I'm unworthy is a good thing. We hear about it in church and in scripture. And so I'd better just stay in my place of unworthiness because it's safe there. My dear, dear, beloved friend, if that is you, you're missing the point. And you're not allowing God's salvation to be at work in you. The unworthiness is about us never being able to earn or deserve God's grace by our own efforts or because of anything within ourselves. But it does not mean that you can never receive that grace 
if that grace, if God's true and complete acceptance of you is being blocked, that is an unbelief in you that must be rooted out. Our God will never speak over you words of unworthiness and condemnation. If you have turned to him and asked for his help, he will never. If you have called on him, if you believe and trust that he gave himself for you and you've asked for his help, you are set free from the spirit of unworthiness. And if words of unworthiness are still being spoken into your heart, that is not God's voice. It is the voice of the enemy. And he is a liar. Jesus sets you free from that. These two things are needed like the centurion, to recognize that we are not deserving or worthy. And also to recognize that Jesus can help and wants to help and will help. And to allow him to do that, to do his work in us fully. I wonder if there's someone listening who needs Jesus's help maybe you need Jesus's help like the centurion did with something in your life something that you're facing I wonder if there's someone who for ever so long has been held back and held down by the belief that you're not worthy and can therefore never ask and never receive and you're living in this half world with one foot in the freedom that Jesus gives, but the other foot is still in prison. The centurion knew he wasn't worthy, but he also knew that he could ask. And that when he asked, help was given, life was given, because he had just enough faith to ask and believe. Is there a voice of God in your heart just now? What is he saying to you? He wants you to ask and believe. He will answer. We're going to play a song now. Some of you may know it. We'll just stay seated. It's entirely up to you whether you want to sing, if you know it or not, but just let God speak. Let's play the song, please. <laughs> 